Assalamu alaikum. Welcome back to Islamic History Exclusive. This is the podcast exclusively for Patreon subscribers of the Islamic History Podcast. And in this series, we are covering the life of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, also known as the Sirah. And today we, we will be doing going over Sirah episode number 31. So first, a recap of the last episode where we had the Treaty of Hudaybiyah in place and the Prophet was now sending out emissaries. And he sent out five emissaries to various regional powers. He sent them to the Patriarch of Alexandria in Egypt, the Christian Arab Ghazana tribe in southern Syria, also sent one to Khosrau II, who was the Sassanid Persian emperor. And then finally, he sent one to Heraclius, who was the emperor of Rome, based in Constantinople. And I said, finally, back to the last one was, um, the last emissary he sent was to Anajashi, the king of Abyssinia. And we cover the outcomes of all of them. Uh, with one, there was one of the emissaries that we did not complete the story with, the Christian Arab Hosanna tribe in southern Syria. He, the Prophet ﷺ sent an emissary there uh, to Basra in southern Syria. And that emissary, the um, the Arab king of that area, he basically scoffed at what the uh, Prophet had sent him. and then, he, But then he went on to send that same message on to Heraclius, who the who was the Arab, the Ghassanids overall master. The Ghassanids were a vassal state of the of the Romans, or really the Byzantines, as we call them now, based in Constantinople. The Arab king, the Ghassanid Arab king, he sent the message on to Heraclius, who was visiting in the region. The prophet's emissary then was on his way back to Medina when he was ambushed in a city called Mu'ta, also in southern Syria, and eventually killed. Let me not say ambushed. He was actually captured by one of the local captains or or military commanders in that region. And when he heard what the emissary was doing, he went and killed the prophet's emissary. The prophet doesn't know about this yet, but this will play in future episodes of the podcast eventually. All right, so now let's get on with this with this episode, which will mostly cover the Battle of Khaybar. This began in Muharram of the seventh year. Muharram is the first month of the Muslim calendar. So we're now in Muharram 7AH, uh, seven years after the Hijrah. And the Battle of Khaybar, while it started in Muharram, it ended in Safar, which is the second month of the Islamic calendar. We have mentioned Khaybar before. It was mentioned in, Sira, in chapter number 18 of the Sira podcast. And we mentioned how the uh, Prophet had sent some had sent out a few missions to assassinate certain members of some Jewish tribes that were taking refuge in the uh, Khaybar fortresses. And we discussed this on chapter number 18. Go back and listen to that if you missed it or if you want more details. Anyway, Khaybar is a fortress, basically, or actually a settlement. Actually, three settlements about 95 miles north of Medina. They were controlled by several Jewish tribes. Uh, some of these Jewish, some of the Jewish tribes that had once been in Medina and were forced out and evicted by the Prophet ﷺ from Medina for various reasons. Some of the, some of them have had settled inside the um, inside the fortresses or the settlements at Khaybar. So Khaybar was actually made up of 
three different settlements, and each of these settlements was comprised of various fortresses and forts, basically fortified structures belonging to various Jewish tribes and, and groups in this region. And some of these fortresses and forts were larger and stronger than others, but they were just uh, various settlements within uh, this oasis region of Haibar. Anyway, the Muslims had learned that the Jewish tribes at Khaybar were conspiring with the Rotafan. And you remember, of course, that Rotafan had taken part in the Battle of the Trench. The Prophet had a treaty with the Quraysh, but he did not have a treaty with the Rotafan. So there's nothing stopping the Rotafan from continuing to conspire and plot against the Muslims. And the Rotafan were a fairly, a fairly large and powerful tribe also. And there are some sources that say the Jewish tribes of Khaybar were actually paying the Rotafan, who were pagan Arab tribes, to attack Medina. So when the Prophet heard of this conspir conspiracy going on, he set out with 1,400 Muslims, and those who accompanied him on this expedition or on this battle against, uh, against the uh, tribe of Khaybar, these were those who were also present at the Treaty of Hudaybiyah, However, some of those Muslims who had accompanied the Prophet to Hudaybiyah but had shown some of the most resistance at the treaty, some of them who really didn't like the terms of the treaty and showed the most resistance when the Prophet told them to shave their heads. If you don't remember, if you don't remember that, please go back and review it. But some of those who showed the most resistance, the Prophet made them stay behind in Medina and would not allow them to accompany him on this expedition. Kind of like a, a, a mild punishment for disobedience. And uh, during this expedition, uh, this battle of Khaybar, which was actually several battles, which we'll get into, Ali ibn Abi Talib was the primary military commander for the Prophet And so eventually the Muslims began to start capturing the force at Khaybar. The Prophet actually set up camp at Hudratul Raji, which is about 30 miles south of Khaybar. So it was uh, between Khaybar and uh, Medina. The reason why the Prophet set up camp here was that he wanted to maintain his force here and keep a watch on the Ghatafan. This area where the Prophet set up his camp, this was in between the Khaybar, the uh, settlements at Khaybar, and the area that was controlled by Banu Ghatafan. So this was basically made as a check to make sure that the Rotafan could not leave their home and go assist and go and assist Khaybar or attack the Muslims from behind. But it was done for a strategic reason for both. Both of those were strategic reasons why the Prophet set up camp here. So he sent he the Prophet would stay at Hurraturaji and then send Ali and other commanders, though Ali was the overall military commander. But he sent out other expeditions under other companions, including Omar and Abu Bakr and others. But Ali was the overall commander of the attacks or the fight against um, Khaybar. So the Prophet would stay at Hurraturaji and then send expeditions and commandments and detachments off to attack different forts at Khaybar. At one point during these various expeditions, Ali ibn Abi Talib, he came down with an eye infection and he uh, came to the Prophet about it, and he couldn't go out into battle because his eye was messed up. Some say it was pink eye, or it could have been perhaps, um, I've seen certain 
eye infections. There's various eye infections you can get. I'm not a doctor, can't go through all of them. But it may have also been in one where his eyes produced a large amount of mucus and it crusted them over. Along those best exactly what kind it was. Some translations say it was pink eye. Pink eye to me seems kind of mild, so it may have been something more extreme than what we commonly know as pink eye. But whatever the case, one of the miracles that the Prophet ﷺ heard about Ali's infection, he told him to come and he told him to meet him at his tent. Ali did, and the Prophet spat in Ali's eye, and his eye was immediately healed. So go through some of the battles of Khaybar. They're like, once again, the various fort fortresses spread out among three settlements. So Khaybar was, once again, a, a group of settlements with multiple fortresses in them. The first one that's mentioned, or the first one that the Muslims attacked, was the castle of Marhab. This was the first fortress. Marhab was the name of the chief who commanded this castle. It was, once again, a Jewish tribe that was staying there, and Marhab was a chief of this Jewish tribe. And when the Muslims came and lined up before the castle, Marhab, he came out and challenged the Muslims to single combat. And Ali went ahead and accepted his challenge, and Marhab was killed by Ali ibn Abi Talib. And the castle of Marhab was quickly conquered by the Muslims. Then came the fort of Naim. I'm not going to go through all of the different battles. There's quite a few of them, but just brief recaps on all of them. The fort of At the fort of Naim, a companion named Mahmoud ibn Maslama was killed while fighting at the fort of Naim. Someone dropped a stone on his head and killed him. Another one of the forts that was captured was called Asaab, and this was captured actually by a tribe called Banu Sahm. Banu Sahm was a sub-clan from Banu Khuza'a who were allied with the Prophet. We mentioned them in previous episodes also. Banu Saham had come to the Prophet and they complained that they were suffering from drought and were very poor and didn't have that much resources. So the Prophet made dua for them and Banu Saham, they went ahead and captured um, the fort of Sa'ab. And with the capture of this fort, this helped to relieve their suffering. As I mentioned, the Prophet sent different people. Ali didn't lead every single battle. The Prophet sent different people as different companions for different forts around in the region. There was also the battle at the fort of Al-Qamus. The chief from the Banu Nadir tribe from Medina, which was one of those tribes that had been expelled by the prophet from Medina, he was staying at this fort. His uh, The fort was eventually captured, and his daughter Safiya was taken captive after it was captured. And after the whole battle of Khaybar was concluded, the prophet freed her because she was captured and therefore made a slave. The Prophet ﷺ freed her and then married her, and she became his wife. Another one of the or two more forts that were captured were uh, the fort called Watih and another one called Sulalim. These were the last two forts where the Muslims faced active resistance at Khaybar. The Muslims besieged them for about 10 days, and finally, these two forts capitulated and agreed to pay the Muslims tribute, which would wind up being half of their harvest. There's still several forts remaining at Khaybar, but the rest of them surrendered without a fight, and they basically agreed to the same uh, terms as uh, Watih and Sulalim, basically saying that they would give the Muslims as tribute half of their harvest. 
Now, the, the rest of the force that capitulated and surrendered without any fighting, they surrendered. They sent emissaries or diplomats directly to the prophet and surrendered to him directly. They were never actually attacked nor besieged by any Muslims. And so no horses or animals or camels or soldiers actually from the Muslims actually set foot on their property. So when they came and submitted or surrendered direct, directly to the prophet, these remaining fortresses, they became the direct property of the prophet. So he did not have to divide them among his companions because none of the other soldiers took, play, took part in actually conquering those fortresses. And so these became the property, essentially, these remaining fortresses became property essentially of the Prophet and the Prophet allowed them to remain on their lands. However, he retained the right to expel them in the future if he, if uh, the necessity came up. That was some part of the um, terms of their surrender. And so with that, essentially, Khaybar was captured. It was, a, uh, all things considered, it was a very easy victory for the Muslims. They, they experienced some resistance, but each and every single one of the forts that they encountered ultimately capitulated and surrendered or were conquered. And the uh, it was a, a, a big victory for the Muslims. They, they now had quite a bit of wealth and land. We'll go over that in a moment. Some of the um, major events or results from the Battle of Khaybar. One of the most important things that happened was that the Prophet was almost poisoned during or after the battle had been concluded. After the battle had been concluded, one of the Jewish women came to the prophet and asked him which portion of meat he preferred. And he mentioned the shank, which is like the leg portion of a goat. And so she went and prepared a roast goat for him. Now, this Jewish woman, she had been a captive. Most likely she was a slave at this point in time. Don't know what ultimately, actually, I do know what ultimately happened to her. I'll explain that in a moment. Anyway, so she prepared roast goat for the prophet, but in her preparation, she poisoned it. And her thinking was that, if he was truly a prophet, then the poison would not kill him. Obviously, Allah would warn him about, warn him about it. But if he was just a king coming to conquer more 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 uh, territory, then he would be killed. He would die, and her, her people would be free of him. And so she prepared the goat. She poisoned it, served it to the prophet and some of his companions. But the prophet he detected the poison. As Muslims will say that Allah warned him of it, Allah knows best what actually happened, but he bit into the meat, but he did not swallow it and immediately spat it out. However, one of his companions who was sitting with him did swallow the meat and the poison immediately killed him. And so since the prophet did survive the poisoning attack, the Jewish woman who had attempted to poison him, she thereafter accepted Islam. And so there was a question now what to do about her because she had just killed a Muslim. The prophet's companion did die from that, but the prophet survived and that convinced her that he was a prophet, and though she was, she immediately accepted Islam. So because of that, rather than have her punished as she was going to be turned over to the companion's family, the one who died to be executed, but rather than that, she now became Muslim. And so she had to be set free and she was. There are some other reports regarding this poisoning attempt that I've heard throughout my, I couldn't find any notes on all of them, but one report that I have heard in my lifetime, I couldn't find anything to, to corroborate it, but I'll just mention it because it comes to my memory, 
is that the Prophet ﷺ, upon eating this food, he said, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim, and that protected him from the poisoning, whereas the other person did not. I don't know how true that is. I couldn't find anything in the books that I have now. This is something I heard years ago. I just wanted to bring this on. But one thing I did find reports on that did happen um, during this incident was that there are some people who believe that even though the Prophet took a bite of the uh, food and spit it out, some of the poison still got into his system and lingered there. And there, are, and there are some reports that say that because a little bit of this poison got into his system and lingered, it contributed to his death three years later. And Allah knows best if that is actually true. I believe the reason why people say that the poison may have led, ultimately led to his demise was that upon his deathbed, when the prophet was going through the thro the pain throes of death, the ultimate uh, pain that ultimately led to his death or that preceded his death, he mentioned the name of the companion who did die while uh, during this poisoning attempt. And so that led some people to connect the two events. I'm not really sure it was three years later. I'm not aware what kind of poison it was. I, I wish we had that information. Maybe somebody does. I don't know. But, you know, who knows what? Who knows if it was possible that the poison could have lingered in his system for three years, ultimately killing him so much later? Allah knows best. In any case, as a result of the Battle of Khaybar, the Muslims now had a considerable amount of land and wealth. They now controlled, this is basically, in, in, for lack of a better word, a vassal state of Medina. The Muslim power was growing now. They controlled this region, this area that was almost 100 miles away from them. So they now controlled this region. This property in this area that was hundreds, not hundreds, dozens of miles from Medina, far outside the boundaries of Medina, and had brought the Muslims a whole lot of wealth. And so the Muhajirun, who had come with the Prophet during the Hijrah, that's what they call Muhajirun, these were the original Muslims who had accepted Islam while the Prophet was still in Mecca, they were now suddenly fabulously wealthy after, gathering, after gaining all this wealth from Khaybar and all the other expeditions. So they began to return the land and wealth that they had borrowed from the Ansars, who were the inhabitants of Medina, who converted to Islam. And they began to return this wealth, not because now they had come into wealth and property and land of their own. The conquest of Khaybar also brought large amounts of farms because of the land around Khaybar was fairly close to the Red Sea. Uh, presumably, it re probably received a larger portion of rain than other parts of Arabia, especially Mecca, which is very, very dry. In any case, it seems as if uh, the land in this region was was relatively fertile from Arabia standards. And so now the Muslims had large tracts of very fertile land. They also acquired all the livestock of Khaybar, which was evidently quite a bit of it, and also all the weapons, which was something important when you are surrounded by a bunch of enemies. And so the Muslims, the Muslim state of Medina was now starting to get very much stronger and much more powerful. And there is also some mention about the spoils of war and a portion of Surah Al-Anfal, which is the name of the surah, which was, which actually means spoils of war, were revealed regarding the division of the spoils of war. And so we won't get into all the details of how things are divided because that has been modified several times over the years based upon Sunnah and previous battles and the way the Muslim state has grown. And 
it's there's a lot to it, and I don't want to get into all the details of the spoils of war. But essentially, but to boil it down very quickly, one fifth of the spoils of war goes back to Allah and His Messenger, which is in another way of saying the state, the government, the uh, Muslim government, government that you know authorized the expedition or the battle or whatever that that case may be. So the Prophet took one fifth of the spoils from um, the Battle of Khaybar. And he used this to care for him and his immediate family and also used it for various state purposes. Now, within this battle, roughly about 15 Muslims were killed in the Battle of Khaybar. And remember, the Battle of Khaybar consisted of several different smaller battles and sieges. About 15 or so Muslims were killed. There were 40, actually less than 40 Jewish Jewish casualties in these battles. And there's a story of Bilal. Ibn Rabah, the Prophet's companion, leading a group of of uh, Jewish women captives back to the Prophet. Remember, the Prophet was at a location uh, about 30 miles or so away from the Battle of Khaybar, where actual Khaybar took place. And as they were passing through and as they leading them back, they went through a region where several of the Jewish men, male fighters had been killed and their bodies were just lined up in preparation for burial. And as he was leading the women through, some of them started screaming and crying and were very distressed. Presumably, they were related to some of these men that they passed through. And the prophet rebuked Bilal for being so careless and told him to have mercy because he was bringing the women right through this line of sight where they could see their dead male relatives. And it was just a mistake on on Bilal. In any case, the Muslims were now consistently winning, and the Prophet didn't really have to drag things out with the Jews at Khaybar, and he kind of wanted to to, um, to mend relations with them. So he gave them fairly easy terms. He didn't really um, put them through any hardships. And we're going to discuss uh, the Battle of Qurayda that happened in Mecca, I'm sorry, in Medina, in a few seconds. Anyway, the Prophet didn't really have to drag things out. The Muslims were consistently winning. Their land and property and wealth and, and influence was growing. And so he gave the Jews of Khaybar fairly easy terms. And as he mentioned, those who capitulated and surrendered, all he asked for them was that they give him half of their tribute, half of their, um, their harvest to, to the Muslims in Medina as tribute. So he didn't really impose any other any other strict means on any other strict terms on them. So the prophet, there's several reasons why he wanted to do this. He uh, basically wanted to show that he did not have any animosity towards the Jews. He was also trying to mend ties with them because there had been quite a bit of fighting back and forth, the fighting and controversy and confrontation between the Muslims and the Jews of the region. And so he wanted to try to mend ties with them. And his marriage to Safiya was one of those ways of trying to mend those ties with the Jews as well. And so from this point out, there really wasn't too much conflict between the Muslims and the Jews of Arabia for the rest of the Prophet's life. <clears throat> now, this brings us back to the Battle of Koreida. I mentioned, or the Siege of Abano Koreida, which we mentioned uh, several episodes ago. And as you remember, I'll briefly recap it. After the Battle of the Trench, Banu Koreida was the final remaining Jewish tribe within Medina, and they had conspired and went along with 
the Confederates, the, the Quraysh and the Rotafan and the other tribes that had joined this effort at the Battle of the Trench. And after the Muslims came out victorious on that, as you mentioned in the earlier episode, the Muslims lay siege to Banu Qurayda. The, um, eventually, Banu Qurayda capitulated, and as punishment, the women and children were taken captives, and the men were killed, leading to about 600 deaths. I wanted to mention something about this, and I did mention before how the story was somewhat disturbing, and one of the listeners pointed out to me on the uh, Patreon site, and I encourage you, you can, go, you can go see the comments if you go and look at the comments for this episode. One of the listeners to the Islamic History Exclusive who heard that, that podcast, he pointed out that there has been debate as to whether this event really happened, because... There's two reasons that he pointed out was that one, there's only one source for this for this story. And that all comes from um, uh, Abu Ibn Ishaq, who is a very famous and very popular, um, very famous, very popular biographer um, or a Muslim historian from the early times of Islamic history. He's very popular. And so much of the information we get about the Prophet's life and about the Sido comes from Ibn Ishaq. However, He's the only source for this information. And the other reason the listener pointed out was that this event, if it happened, was very much out of character for the Muslims. And I kind of agree with that. And I do kind of see that. And I'm glad he pointed this out because I'm not perfect. And I didn't I didn't know that there was a debate like this going on. I'm glad he pointed this out. And I can probably do more research on it. But now that it got me thinking, though, Basically, every major event in the Prophet's life is mentioned in the Qur'an. The expulsion of the other tribes is mentioned, all the various battles that the Prophet went into, especially the major ones, these are all mentioned, and especially the ones that the Prophet participated in himself. Now, if this siege happened where hundreds of people, hundreds of enemies were killed, I'm inclined to believe there will be some mention of that in the Quran, but it is not mentioned at all. So with that in mind, I'm more inclined to believe that perhaps this did not happen exactly as they say, with only one source to it. And honestly, I haven't done any serious look looking into or research as to whether there's, there's a hadith about it, but... I'm not saying that I, I should know about it. That I don't want to say that if there's a hadith, I would have heard about it. I don't want to say that, but I have read a lot of hadith, and I really think that something like this would have come up that would have corroborated it, that would have corroborated this. And if you know of anything, let me know either to corroborate that it did happen or did not happen outside of what we already had. But the strongest evidence to me that it probably did not happen is really the really the fact that it's not mentioned in the Quran. A major event like this where hundreds of people were killed. I mean, the Quran mentions events that fights and wars that were, you know, comparatively speaking, as far as numbers were concerned, which might, were much, much more minor than this. I mean, let's face it, the Battle of Badr, why it was important in, his, in the big scheme of things, less than a hundred people were killed. Less than a hundred, um, less than a hundred, uh, Quraysh were killed. So, another events between the prophet and the Jewish tribes of Medina, those were are mentioned in the Quran, but this event is not. And so 
and this would have been a major victory in certain in a certain respect for the Muslims, and it didn't happen. It's not it's not mentioned, and so I'm inclined to believe that the uh, um, the siege of Banu Koreda, as it is proper most uh, popularly mentioned or known in Islamic history, probably did not happen in that way. And Ibn Ishaq, he, he's uh, fairly reliable, but I have read several of his stories that make me kind of scratch my head. And like, Come on, man, all that stuff didn't happen. <laughs> I mean, some of his numbers are wildly, wildly exaggerated. For example, and we didn't get to this, we didn't get to this yet. I know I'm going a bit off track here, but bear with me. For example, the Battle of Mu'ta, which is going to be coming up in the next couple of episodes. In this battle, the Muslims sent out an expedition to fight against the Ghassana tribe, who were, we mentioned the Ghassana tribe, the same ones who killed the Prophet's emissary earlier, that I mentioned earlier at the beginning of this episode. The Prophet sends out an expedition to, to fight them. The Muslims were ultimately defeated in that when they had to go back to Medina. But in the... the um, Tafsir of that, not Tafsir, I'm sorry, <laughs> in the history of the, or the Sita of that episode of that battle, it mentions like over 100,000 enemy soldiers were present there at this battle against a force of about 300 Muslims. That's impossible. There could not have been 100,000 soldiers there. <laughs> That's... I don't even think about 100,000 people in all of Arabia at that time, okay? 100,000 people. I mean, there have been, now, this Hosanna tribe was affiliated with the Roman Empire, and the Roman Empire kept pretty good records of their soldiers and their military exploits. It is, and there are, there have been historians who know the Roman Empire up and down in depth, all throughout history, all throughout the past four or five hundred years of human history, that's well documented. The history of the Romans is very well known. And from what I've read, they have the Roman Empire at that time had at most maybe about 200,000 soldiers. At most, in the entire Roman Empire, they only had about maybe at best 200,000 soldiers. It is impossible they would have committed half of their troops at this in this outpost on the edges of the Arabian desert to fight against this upstart kingdom of, of Muslims, which is how they would have viewed the Muslims at that time. They were still seeing them as, a, as an upstart. It is impossible they would have committed half of their troops to this battle, yet um, Tariq Atapari mentions that there's 100,000 in there. And that's not possible. Okay, so some of these numbers are really get really get exaggerated. I'm inclined to believe the same thing happened at Banu Qurayza. The numbers got exaggerated. Perhaps it was 60, and even that is kind of a lot compared to how many people often were usually killed in these battles that Prophet Sallallahu had. Even that would have been a lot. So I'm inclined to believe, yeah, I think those numbers were exaggerated. Maybe a few people were killed after they were expelled or after the siege ended, but 600... Nah, I'm, I think that's just way too much. And once again, as we always say, Allah knows best. So that will end it for the Battle of Khaybar, but we have a few more events to go over. So the battle's over and the Muslims are heading back to Medina. And they stopped at a valley called Wadi al-Qura. And by the time they arrived there, it was very late at night. And so the Muslims prepared for sleep. 
since it was pretty close to uh, Fajr or the dawn prayer, Bilal volunteered to stay up and wake them up for Fajr. So Bilal, he prayed his Qiyamul Layl or the night prayers, and he leaned against his camel to wait for dawn. But while he was leaning against his camel, he wound up falling asleep also. So when uh, Bilal finally woke up, the sun had already risen in the sky. And the prophet asked Bilal, what happened? And Bilal said, well, the same thing that happened to you happened to me. We all fell asleep. The prophet said, pretty much said, yeah, you're right about that. I mean, I'm, of course, um, paraphrasing. But the prophet acknowledged that Bilal was not guilty because they, they were all tired and sleeping. And so the prophet led them, led the Muslims in prayer. But afterwards, he told them this is an important part. This became a part of uh, Islamic fiqh or sharia, uh, the basic rules of Islam. Basically told the companions afterwards that if they forget about a prayer, if they oversleep or miss a prayer, then they should make it up as soon as they remember it. And that's just part of Islamic fiqh. And it can get broken down further. But of course, the rules for making up for prayers is uh, pretty common knowledge in Islam. Um, and this is not a fiqh podcast, so I don't want to get into all that too much. The final thing to mention to mention is that um, while the Prophet was at Khaybar or on his way back to Khay- back from Khaybar, his cousin Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, he returned from Abyssinia after being there for 15 years. And we mentioned in the previous episode how the Prophet had sent an emissary to Abyssinia, letting the uh, king uh, An-Najashi know that he wanted his uh, followers to come back. And we mentioned that in the last episode, you can go listen to it. So Jafar returned with about 16 other Muslim immigrants to Abyssinia. And just a, we'll talk about Jafar more. He does come into play later on, especially regarding the Battle of Malta that we just mentioned earlier. Jafar will come into the play, into position, or come into play a little bit more later on. But just so you know about Jafar, uh, a little bit about his story, he was, uh, of course, the brother of, of uh, Ali ibn Abi Talib. And I'm pretty sure I mentioned this a long time ago in one of the early episodes of this podcast. But when the prophet was young, I mean young, I mean a young man, he had uh, comparatively young. His uncle, Abu Talib, whose sons were Jafar and Ali, had gone on hard times. And so different people, different members of the family had volunteered to take in um, Abu Talib's sons to help him help ease his burden and make it easier for him to uh, during this difficult financially difficult time of his and that's how Ali wound up being in the prophet's household at such a young age and the prophet raised him pretty much as a father from that point on I don't I don't remember who Jafar or if Jafar went to anybody else I don't really don't remember but that's how Ali wound up in the prophet's household that's why also Ali has a really different relationship with the prophet he was he was a part of the prophet's family definitely um he married the prophet's daughter fatima and he's a father of the prophet's grandson hassan and hussein but even in these stories you real you just hear how for instance in the treaty of hudaybiyah how ali didn't even want to erase the title messenger of allah you can just read the stories of ali during these times you can just see that his relationship with the prophet was was in a different way it was different from the other companions all the all the companions loved him and the major companions of course Abu Bakr and Omar and Uthman they all loved him and you can you can read and hear the love and their expression and their expressions of love for the prophet and their obedience but the relationship with Ali 
was different from the from the relationship with Abu Bakr and Omar. It's just more. It was different because that wasn't just he wasn't just their pro he wasn't just Ali's prophet or you know Ali's um leader and he wasn't just a messenger of Allah that he was that but it was so much more with Ali it's like he was I guess because he was also a relative he was part of the prophet's family but anyway Ali's relationship with the prophet and Jafar too though we don't have as much information about Jafar but Ali's relationship was much stronger with the prophet than um than the other companions were with him anyway. Uh, so Jafar was known. Uh, he, used to be, he was known to be very kind and generous to the poor. As a matter of fact, his nickname was um, Abul Masakin, or the Father of the Poor. And even though he did not take part in the Battle of Khaybar, the Prophet still gave Jafar and the other uh, members who came from the migration. He still gave them an equal share from the spoils of Khaybar. And that will do it for this episode. So, inshallah, we'll continue the uh, events of the seventh year of the Hijrah in the next episode or so. Until next time, assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.